Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. You see it oftentimes when you're watching a sporting event. You probably know what I'm talking about. Here we have a picture of the end zone. The Vikings are beating the Steelers. I feel kind of like uh, spiritual John Madden here. If you run the play and come up here, there it is. John chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, uh, when T Tim Tebow was playing football, uh, he had John 3.16 on his eye black that he used underneath the eyes there. I came across another uh, form of John 3.16, and uh, you'll see it here. Here's this guy running with John 3.16. I wondered to myself, is this a form of evangelism that he's practicing? And is the guy over here who's chasing him really chasing him and wanting to know, what does it mean? What, is, what do I have to do to be saved? Probably not. I think this guy's in trouble with that guy. But we see it all over the place in the media. John 3.16. In fact, even Christian-owned companies sometimes will print John 3.16 and other verses on their packaging. For instance, one of my favorite uh, burger joints is In-N-Out Burger. I'm not doing an advertisement for them. Obviously, they're not here in Minnesota. But I really like their burgers. But uh, I also enjoy the fact that you can sit down and have an In-N-Out meal and take a quick tour through the Bible. So, for instance, on their uh, hamburger wrapper, I do wish this had a hamburger in it, by the way, uh, a double-double for me. But anyway, on, on their hamburger wrapper, uh, they have the Scripture verse, Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. So, while you're eating your burger, you can read that the Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in Him. And then the fry uh, wrapper also, or carrier, has a verse on it. And uh, that one is Revelation 3.20, which says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Now, I don't know if Jesus meant in and out or French fries, but uh, he will share a meal with us. He wants fellowship with us. And then, of course, there's the, the drink cup. And uh, inside or on the bottom of this cup, on the little rim underneath, you've got finally that verse we all know so well, John chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, why don't you just say it out loud with me? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. So it is probably the most popular, well-known verse in the Bible. Somebody has called it the gospel in a nutshell. But you know, if you think about it for a minute, though a lot of people may see it and hear about it, I just don't know how many people actually live it and practice it. And how oftentimes, you know, these things just kind of get discarded and forgotten about. Well, what about John 3.16? And what about that phrase that comes from John chapter 3, the importance of being born again? Do people really understand what it means? Do even we who call ourselves Christians, those who are born again, really understand what it means? I raised that question because of a survey that the Christian Post shared. It was from a ministry called Probe Ministries, which commissioned the survey of over 3,000 people ages 18 to 55 to try to find out if they understood what it means to be born again. And in particular, they noticed that those who on the survey said they were born again, and they had to identify the fact that they did believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that they had confessed their sins and received him in his, into their lives, 70% of those folks said that even though that was true for them, they believe that there are other ways of being born again, that there are other ways to come into heaven, which probably explains why then they don't share their faith with others. Let me just read to you from the actual report itself. It says, when asked why they don't share their beliefs with others, born-again respondents chose they can get to heaven through their different religious beliefs. Or we shouldn't impose our ideas on others. Or, well, the Bible tells us not to judge others. So in other words, I don't need to share the faith with anybody because obviously there are other ways that you can be born again. There are other ways that you can enter the kingdom of God. Now that's coming from 70% of those who said, I know what it means to be born again. I am born again. Now, I'm not here to question whether or not they are actually born again or not. But I am here to say that they are greatly mistaken and they totally misunderstand what it means to be born again. What John 3.16 is really all about. And I would like to challenge those of you who are joining me right now. If you have kids, students in your home. I want to challenge you at some point after we're finished to ask them what their understanding of what it means to be born again is. And if they're not with you for some reason, give them a call this week. Have a conversation with them and, and just say, you know, what do you understand it to mean to be born again? Well, there was a man in Israel, a religious scholar, who was concerned about eternal things, especially after he encountered Jesus. And so he came to Jesus with kind of a similar question. I want to introduce you to him. John chapter 3, if you want to follow along. Beginning of verse 1, it says, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader, who was a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. So who is, I'll call him Nick at night, and what's he all about? Well, Nicodemus was not only a teacher in Israel of the law, later on Jesus calls him the teacher. So 
this guy was fairly popular. He had a lot of influence. And he was all about telling the people what God means and what God says and then to model that out in his life. He was a serious scholar of the law, a serious scholar of the prophets, a man who could tell you what the kingdom of God is really ultimately about and how you get into the kingdom of God. He was also part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the spiritual version of the Supreme Court in the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion and belief, which means that not only was he wise, but he was also, we know from history then, very wealthy as well. So why does he come at night to meet with Jesus? Well, for one thing, Jesus always had crowds around him, so he may have wished for and wanted some privacy. But scholars speculate that the reason he came at night was because he didn't want any of his peers seeing him come to Jesus, lest they think that somehow, you know, Nicodemus is jumping into the Jesus boat, and he's going along with the, the new message, this gospel message that Jesus is preaching. But at the same time, Nicodemus is sincerely interested in who Jesus is and what's going on. Let's find out some more. In John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. In other words, I'm not the only one. There's a whole bunch of us, Jesus, that when we listen to you and watch what you do, it is obvious to us that, that God is really at work in your life and your words are powerful. The miracles speak of God's power. And well, we just, we just want to know what that means. I, I want to know what that means. I want to know how to have that same authority in my life. I want to know how I can be used by God like you're being used by God as well. It's almost like he's saying, you know, would you consider mentoring me? And Jesus just, just goes right by all of that and, and he cuts to the quick. I mean, he just gets right to the point and he kind of throws it back in Nicodemus' face and, and Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, unless you are, there's that phrase, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Man, <laughs> that had to be hard for Nicodemus to hear. I mean, here's a guy that tells people about the kingdom of God that's there to kind of point the way in. And Jesus is saying to him, you, Nicodemus, you who has studied the law your whole life, you who are conservative and orthodox, you who fast, you who pray, you who have memorized the Torah, you who give generously to those in need, you are outside the kingdom and you're not going to get into the kingdom. That would be hard to hear if you were Nicodemus. Wouldn't you find that hard to hear? And even hearing that about Nicodemus, doesn't that make you scratch your head a little bit and think, wow, I mean, I would have thought that Nicodemus was in. Instead, Jesus uses this word that we're uncomfortable with. He uses this word, unless. And I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes that word, unless, means no exceptions. Like, this is it. This is the only way. There are not five ways or ten ways or three ways to be born again. Jesus says, unless you are born again the way I am telling you you have to be born again, well, you are not going to get in. 
So a real tight exception here that he shares with Nicodemus, which then kind of puts Nicodemus a little bit, you know, on the defensive. And he responds back and he says to Jesus, he says, what do you mean? Exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, let's give Nicodemus a bit of a break here, okay? It's not like he's ignorant. And he literally thinks that Jesus is saying, you know, crawl back in your mother's womb and be born again. In essence, what he's saying is, what do you mean by what you just said to me? Because according to you, it's as though you're telling me I would have to go into my mother's womb and come out again, and that's an impossibility. And of course, that's Jesus' point. It's an impossibility. With human beings, it is impossible to be born again. Just like it's physically impossible to be born again, it is from our end of things, from our effort, it is impossible to be spiritually born again. It seems so ridiculous to Nicodemus. And so Jesus responds to him. And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water, probably a reference to natural birth. That is, you got to be born first naturally, okay? And the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it's coming from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, there comes a point when you can explain things humanly speaking. But then there's another aspect that is spiritual that you can't necessarily put into words. And the work of the Spirit bringing salvation into the heart and soul of a person is something that you can see and notice and, I guess, to a degree, feel and experience. But it's not something you can just necessarily scratch out on a piece of paper as a diagram. There is a part of it that requires faith. Faith in God. Faith in who he is and faith in what he has done for each one of us. I love what uh, Tim Keller says in referring to the Gospels. He says, look, Jesus did not come to lead a reformation. He came to lead a transformation. A transformation that only God can carry out in our lives. There's nothing I can do to become born again. There's nothing I can do to enter into God's grace by all my efforts, by all my works, by all my goodness like Nicodemus had. It is something that God has to do for me and in me and through me. And only God can do it, and only God can do it through his son, Jesus Christ, which means I have to have a posture of absolute humility in order to experience what God has for me and what God has for you and for your children and for your friends and for this world, for God so loved the world, it says in John 3.16, that he did something for the world that the world cannot do for itself. Let's look at it a different way. Let's imagine that you have a cherry tree, all right? But what you want are 
grapes so you can have grape jelly. That's what you really want. But you've got a cherry tree, so what do you do? I suppose you could go out and buy a bunch of grapes, several bunches of grapes, and tie them on to the cherry tree, but that wouldn't make any sense, right? That'd be nonsense. Or I suppose you could prune back that cherry tree way, way back, and then pray that grapes will appear and wait for grapes to appear, and then when finally the harvest comes around, you have a bumper crop of cherries, not of grapes, from which you can get grape jelly. What do you have to do? You gotta take that cherry tree and you gotta literally pull it out by the roots, everything out by the roots, throw it aside and plant grape seed. Grow a grapevine which will produce grapes which you can then get grape jelly from when you process those grapes. It is impossible to be born again from human nature from this nature that we have. We need an implantation of God's nature. And that can only be done as the Spirit comes into our hearts and into our lives. Let's take a look at it from an even different angle for a moment. Now, I want you to imagine, and this, you know, you oftentimes hear these stories, sometimes they're told as jokes. You can imagine two people standing in line in heaven, okay? And the question is, you know, am I going to make it through the gates? And I don't know why, but St. Peter's always at the entrance of the gates, right? So imagine these two people, and, and one of them hears the other, the guy who's ahead in the line, say and moan and be concerned about what's going to happen to him because on earth he was a mass murderer. And you're thinking to yourself, this is not going to be good for that guy. He, he's called out next. He goes up to St. Peter, and the other guy's sitting there, and he's watching, and he's kind of looking at the the body language, and suddenly sees the mass murderer's head hang down, and two strong angels take him and pull him away over to a, a doorway that says, hell. And the door opens, and away the guy goes. And the other guy's there, and he's watching this all happen. Maybe it's you. Let's pretend it's you. And you're watching this all happen, and you're thinking to yourself, whew, I'm glad I'm not that guy. I mean, the only thing I've ever killed is a mosquito. And I know that's part of the curse, so no problem there. And all of a sudden you hear, next, you're that guy now or you're that gal and you have to walk up and you figure Peter's going to welcome you in. But instead, Peter tells you that you're going to go the same way as the mass murderer went and two angels grab you and you're like, what is going on here? And as they're pulling you away, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, St. Peter. I never killed anybody. And Peter says, time out. He says, do you think that that guy went to hell because he killed so many people? You got it wrong. The reason he's going to hell is because of his pride, because he believed he didn't need God telling him what to do in his life, that he could live life on his own terms, which led to him taking away life from others. No, it's his pride. It's him thinking he doesn't need God that condemns him. And the same thing Peter says is true about you. You have lived a life that you think is good enough to make it into heaven based on your own efforts. In essence, what you said is you don't need God. You can do this on your own. So that door and that hell, that's what you've worked for. A life without God. Through that doorway is life without God, which is hell. 
an existence empty of God's presence. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that story, when I hear anybody talk about hell, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It makes born-again Christians uncomfortable. But it doesn't change the reality of it. It doesn't change what happens when we reject the gift that God offers us and insist that we go about life our way and that we make it into heaven by our own efforts and our own way. God says that just isn't going to work. Because the only other way for us in, we'd have to be perfect like God is. And all of us know, no matter how good we are, even if we're Nicodemus with a PhD in theology, if we don't humble ourselves, bow down before God and receive him, there's no hope for us. And unfortunately, what happens is a lot of times we allow culture to get in the way. We start thinking to ourselves, you know, this is what seems fair to me. If I were God, this is how I would do it. And then we impose that reality on God. We make God adjust, as we said in a recent message, to our likes and our preferences when we don't deal with the rest of reality that way. No, I, as the creation, must adjust to the creator. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. And what I want to do is I want to break this phrase up for just a quick moment, and let's focus on the word again. Because this word again, in the original language, when you translate it, actually means from above. So what Jesus is saying is, look, you, okay, have to be born from above. It's something that God has to do for you. And it's something God has to do in you, and he brings to your life as a result of that. And then Jesus goes on, and he says something that at first seems kind of odd, but we're going to break it down. It's going to make a lot more sense. Here's where we start. Nicodemus says, how could this be? He asked Jesus, and Jesus responds to him and says, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and what we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Let's hold it there for a moment. Jesus is saying to him, look, you're a scholar. You have the Old Testament. You have the law. You have the prophets. It should, be, it should be obvious to you that God has been pointing to the real way to be born again. That he's been pointing to the need of Messiah. All those sacrifices, the law reminds us of how unworthy we are, how we don't have hope. Then he goes on, he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, this isn't something you arrive at by you making your way up to heaven and bringing the truth down to yourself. He says, no, this is something that you can't do that God has brought to you. I have come to you. Then he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave us 
only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What does this all mean? What Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, look, as a scholar of the word of God, you should understand God's plan. It's not something you can create as though you can go into heaven and set the rules down and the guidelines and tell God, this is how we're going to make it in. He's saying God has brought this to you. And just as there are some things that are hard to understand, I'm telling you, here's an illustration from the Old Testament that will explain, Nicodemus, what you have to do in order to be born again. And it's as though Jesus is saying to him, and he is, do you remember the story there in the book of Numbers? Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery to Egypt into the wilderness. And God provided for them water, and God provided them meat, and God provided for them everyday manna. But they were bitter towards God. They complained against God. They hated the menu that God gave them. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And so God gave them what they wanted. Let me read to you that passage of Scripture. It comes out of the book of Numbers, chapter 21. I'm going to begin at verse 6. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. See, what's that all about? Where did they ever ask God to send poison snakes? Well, they never actually said to the Lord, send us poison snakes. But what they did say to God is, we don't like your leadership, God. We don't like what you're providing for us. We prefer to be on our own. We prefer to do this our way and that you do it our way. And so God says, okay, I'll give you your way. And he gave them these poison snakes. Why? Because the poison snakes reminded them of evil. Without me, this is what you're going to get. Because without me, the only thing that is left is that which is not me, which is evil. And the poison and the burning and the, and the death, it's all this huge metaphor, this experience. It was a real experience, but it was a metaphor for us, a picture of evil taking over their lives. And they cry out and they want freedom. They want, they want deliverance. They're repentant. And so God, knowing what's going to happen to his son on the cross, tells Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a stick and raise it up. And everybody who looks up to it, he says, will be healed and will be saved. They don't dance before it. They don't worship it, but they look at it. What does that mean? Uh, you may have been with us uh, last year at Good Friday. I kind of explained this with an illustration from my own family. My daughter lives in Texas and where they live, they have rattlesnakes. 
And they've had a couple of occasions where there's been snakes in the yard. And the kids, rightly so, deathly afraid of those. But my daughter uh, is rather a courageous individual. So she went out, she got a shovel, and let me just say uh, she did away with the snake. All right? And then she scooped it up in the shovel so that the kids could see the snake. That it was dead. That they no longer had to be afraid of it that it wouldn't bite them anymore. What if she had just said, oh, it's gone, don't worry about it. They, they would have been petrified, they'd have been scared. There's still a snake out there. But the fact that they could see it, that it had been taken care of by their mom, gave them a sense of, whew, we're okay now. When they see the serpent up on that stick, it's a message to them, God has dealt with evil. God has, God has judged evil. Look at this and be relieved. Look at this and be healed. That's such a picture of Christ, isn't it? When Jesus hangs there on the cross, he hangs in your place and in my place. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, and he tells all of us, anyone who looks at my son and believes that sin and evil have been judged, that he has taken on himself, and died their death, and believes that with their whole heart, we'll be saved, we'll be born again. There's no other way to be born again. Because every other way is a man, woman made way. Only God's way is something God has done for us, for you, and for me. Paul writes and says, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became our sin in order that we might become his righteousness. That is, God takes away the guilt, the judgment, the sin. And he imparts to us the righteousness of his son, but we must believe with all our hearts. With all our hearts. Which raises the question, how do you know if you are born again? A passage from Romans comes to mind. Paul writes to the Romans, and he says this in chapter 8. He says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. There's not a one of us that are watching right now that doesn't have a moment when we don't think about something sinful. The point here is that's all they think about are sinful things. There's never another thought in their mind. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, okay, right, he's come, his seed's been planted in my life, he's coming in my heart, think about things that please the Spirit. See the difference here? Someone who's truly born again wants to please God. Someone who's not born again wants to please themselves. And yes, I know, even as true followers of Christ, we fall and lapse into moments where we do please ourselves, but we are not comfortable with that. We know, we sense, no, I don't want to please myself. Ultimately, we want to please God. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. So to be born again means there's a change in my life, a change in my behavior. 
To be born again means that I now, with my mind and my heart, I want what God wants. I want to submit to him. So you end up with a couple options here. One, you're not born again because you honestly don't want to submit to God. You don't want to follow his ways, and you don't follow his ways, his word, his truth. Or you truly are born again, but you're in conflict because the flesh and the spirit are battling each other in your life, and you're kind of miserable. Because on the one hand, you want God, but on the other hand, you want the world, and you grieve the spirit who lives in you. That's what Paul says. We quench him. We, it's like throwing water on him. It, it pains him because, because we're not experiencing all that he has for us. And that's why the Bible says God chastises those. He disciplines those whom he loves to get us to the place where we will realize that God has his best intent for us. But let's be honest. There are a lot of folks who don't want God's best They want their own way, and that is what leads them then to an eternity called hell without him, which is not what God wants. That's why Jesus said, I haven't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But it's through me. And if you've ever submitted yourself to Christ and accepted him and that you want him with all your heart, listen, you know the change that he brings. It's a gradual change. It's a process. But he begins that change in our hearts and in our lives. Do you know that change? While I was getting ready for this message, I came across what I consider to be a terrible website. I call it a terrible website because it's actually a place where you can go and live a second life. You can create an avatar of yourself. It can look however you want it to look. It can be, you know, whatever you want it to be. And you can enter into an imaginary land. You can transport yourself anywhere. And you meet other people. You buy, you sell, you own property. Millions are part of this imaginary life. And you communicate with them and have relationships with them. And it's got some real dangerous outcomes if you're not careful. People have lost their marriages because of meetups afterwards. But the whole point in all of this is simply this. Once you log off, guess what? Your second life stops. You are back to your old life. It's just imaginary. What Jesus offers you and me is not imaginary. It is true. It is real. It is a second life a born-again life that replaces this old life until finally one day we stand before God and all of this is peeled off and we experience the fullness that is our freedom. Do you know that life? Based on all that you've heard today, are you born again? Are you born again? I'd like you to just bow your heads where you are right now. And if you are not born again, if you know in your mind and heart you've never surrendered fully to the Lord, or you're unsure about that, you know God, you know about God, you feel a little bit like Nicodemus, but you've never just totally given your whole life to him, 
you're still trying to be the CEO? Are you ready today to lay your life down? Then let me help you. I want to lead you in a prayer that you can pray silently or if you're alone or want to out loud where you are. I'm just trying to help you with words to express what Jesus means for it to be born again. Just pray these words of me. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I do believe that you are the Son of God, that you came and died on the cross for my sins, that you took my sin on yourself, that you took the judgment I deserve on yourself, that you died in my place. I believe that, Lord, and I accept what you have done for me. Please come into my heart. Plant the seed of your spirit. And Lord, help me to learn to daily submit to you, being the CEO of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, friend, if you prayed that prayer with me and meant it with all of your heart, I want to help you grow in your spiritual walk with God. The Bible says we can't do it on our own, that we need each other because we live in a world that is anti-Christ in so many ways. And we need each other's help to encourage each other and, and uh, challenge each other to enact those changes that have now become resident in our life, but we just we need somebody to walk with us to help us begin to experience that. So would you let me know you made that decision today? All you have to do is simply... Go to wooddale.org slash yes, all right? Or click on the button if you're on our online platform that you said yes. And we'll get right back to you with not only helpful information, but a willingness to help coach you through this process. Look forward to hearing from you. And thank you for joining us this weekend. God bless you. Next weekend, we start a brand new series on something that's going to revolutionize your life and your relationships. We're going to talk about how to live a life of kindness. We'll see you then.